You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And invite you, especially if this is one of the first times, to, to gather together around God's Word with us. And we'll read through the entirety of Lamentations chapter 2, and I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a recap of where we've been uh, and a, a picture of where we're going. And so, as is our custom to walk through books of the Bible, my hope is that it sets the tone, that, that as we, we kind of quote one of our dead heroes and we paraphrase my, uh, our old dead hero, the, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, to say that when we open the Bible, the, the Bible actually begins by the power of the Holy Spirit to open us. And so we simply walk through books of the Bible as, is, as we're able, and, and right now we find ourselves in Lamentations. Now, in the story of the Bible, up to this point, God has created all things, and even though the, the one task that he gave to the crowning achievement, the image bearers, that is humanity, was to simply live in glad and humble, dependent communion with him, they couldn't do their one job. And yet that isn't the end of the story. And And even though they rebel against God and and want to be God, God doesn't give up on them and over and over and over again shows mercy and is slow to anger towards them, even delivers them from bondage and promises to be for them and with them and grants them a, a land that he has promised them. And so... As we, uh, as we saw even last year as we walked through the book of Judges, these people, even after receiving the promise of God, their first response, as is our human nature, is to rebel against it. And to say, no, I don't really want this. I want, I want things for myself. I want all the glory. And, and yet even then, God delivers them, shows them patience, and sends to them prophets. And even though their leaders, their judges, and their kings rebel against God and, and don't do the first thing that he asked, like, let me be your God, I'll provide for you and care for you. Once they have a king and a kingdom, the very first kings start to rebel against God and go after other gods. But that isn't the end of it. God sends prophets to speak to them, and he, and he sends what we would call the major prophets. And we find ourselves in this book of Lamentations, as the, as the Bible, the, the canon organizers placed it, it's right in the middle of the major prophets. That is Isaiah, Jeremiah, right, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're major because they're large, but they're also major because they, they carry the bulk of the theme of the entirety of the Old Testament, namely Stop sinning. Turn from sin. Turn back to God. Turn back to this promise-keeping God. Come back to the one who will receive you and restore you. But they rebelled. They didn't listen. And and even in the density of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the, the length and the detail of the warning that God sends to them, they they don't listen. They don't want to turn back. They they want their own thing. They want to follow their own way, worship their own gods, and be God, be their own saviors. And so all the way to the point where God has had enough, turns them over, and to get their attention, allows the Babylonians to come in 587 and 586 BC to level, completely destroy Jerusalem, the capital city of this promised land. And the book of Lamentations, as we saw, is an instructive memorial that reveals God's character, an eyewitness account even, probably written by Jeremiah or with the help of some of his own scribes. We see that eyewitness account of what happens when God turns these people over to the right and good judgment that they brought on themselves. 
So beginning in chapter 2, I want to invite you. Remember several years ago, we, as we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes, I told you, like, I'm going to invite you into despair. I'm going to invite you into sadness. I want to invite you into a very intentional sadness over life under the sun so that you will begin to realize you were made for life beyond the sun. I want to intentionally invite you into a sadness and despair, in this particular case, over sin and the consequences of sin, so that you will long and hope and desire deliverance from it. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. I'll read, it's going to take about, we're going to read the whole chapter, it's going to take about six minutes to get through it. I know on a regular basis I tell you this, I want to stretch your attention span for the reading of the Bible. Now, that's, uh, that's a difficult thing for us because of devices like this. Our attention span's pretty, pretty awful. Uh, we're regularly like, squirrel, right? We're just easily distracted. And so I know in the next six minutes, you're going to probably kind of space out. That's okay. Uh, pay attention to the thing that brings you back to, to the reading of the text. But I do that not just to rail against your short attention span and mine or technology. I think those are good gifts that we can use but instead, it's simply meant to embody what the Bible tells us, right? So that we can say something like out of Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Right? Or, or to be able to say that, that throughout the seven times of the day, I thank you for your righteous rules. Or, or in the watches of the night, I thank you for your precepts. Right? This, this idea that you and I ought to be walking in, guided by, and meditating upon, ruminating on God's Word. And so that's why I want to stretch your attention span as we read through this and let the Holy Spirit do all the work that only the Holy Spirit can do through His Word. So beginning in verse 1. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them as his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garment, or excuse me, like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. 
He caused Rampart and Wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her Ah, This is the day we longed for, and now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, a wall of the daughter of Zion, let Tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see... With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if To a festival day, my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. We believe that this is God's word. And we believe that 
it speaks to us and becomes more than just words and ink on a page, but it becomes the very voice of God for his people. Behold in this chapter the awesome anger and wrath of God. It is truly lamentable. As I'll recap where we've been up to this point, in chapter 1, we saw the first of five poems. They're all written in acrostic form with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so while you can't see it here, you'll see in these 22 verses that each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, for us, it's literally the A to Z, if you will, of lament. It is the A to Z of sorrow over sin and its consequences. And so we saw in the first couple of weeks walking through this, the, the instructive nature of lament, true biblical lament, crying out to God and trusting God with the result involves understanding and being instructed upon the history of sin in our family story and the, the history of sin we saw that led up to this moment. But it's also something we see in clearer relief today as what I would say is first a memorial uh, of suffering and then a revelation of God's character through suffering and the consequences of sin. So we saw that, that lament is instructive. There's an enlightening effect to suffering. The pressure of losing things that you trust in, hope in, and have comfort in is revealing. I say this uh, as many times as I can. We are all, in the last several months, grieving the loss of something. And here's the thing. If some of you don't think so, one of the stages of grief modern psychology helps us with is denial. And so we are all grieving the loss of something. And here's the thing. Please, I, I, I share this with you. My, my, my daughters are, are, in the, are in quickly wishing away their childhood, right? They can't wait to grow up, can't wait. To, and it's like, come on, slow down. Um, I'm proud of you, but stop that, right? And, and you know this. Like, you spend the first half of your life wishing it away and the last half of your life wishing you had it back. And, and I'm somewhere at that turning point, have good days and bad days on either side of that line. And and I would say, don't wish away this beautiful thing. And I would say to you, don't wish away this season. Don't wish away. Don't miss out. The, the story of, of God's people here and the, the message of Lamentations is that God is active and working in the midst of suffering. Suffering has meaning because of the character of God. Don't wish away this season. Stop for a minute and ask yourself, what have I learned in fact, this is a revelation of the character of God, and I want to just ask you that. Hey, as I read through those 22 verses, how did it make you feel? How did it make you feel about God? What are the emotions that it stirs up? When you hear that, God, in his righteous and holy wrath, without pity, did you hear that? Crushed and leveled all the gifts that he had given and blessed his children with. You see, this is a memorial. This is a revelatory and instructive memorial. 
Lament is a good and godly memorial. Now, you'll see this, you know what this is like, right? If you've ever visited Washington, D.C., it's, it's a very, just by nature, even though it's functional as a capital, it's, it's a very touristic destination. It was built that way, to, to invite tourists to come and see. And, and so there are many things you can go as a tourist and see and, and be instructed by what you see. Right? You, can, you could go to the Capitol building or the, or, or, or the White House even, or you could go to the, the Supreme Court building. And, and you, all, you, you see and you learn and you're instructed by these. But there are also other things in D.C. that are touristic in nature, but vastly different. You can go to Arlington Cemetery. I always, that's a Freudian sleep. I always, slip. I always get those two mixed up. You can go to Arlington Cemetery and to the tomb of the unknown soldier. It's a, it's a tourist place. They want people to come in and see, but, but it's, a, it's a different kind of tourism, isn't it? It's a memorial. You can go to, to any of the other veterans' war memorials, right? You can go to the World War II or even the, the Vietnam Veterans' War Memorial, and, and, there's, and, and, and you're, you're invited to walk through, and yet there's something about it. that, In this sightseeing, as it were, you're invited in a profound and poignant way. Don't forget this. Right? Even in D.C. now, there's what? There's a Holocaust museum. Around our country, there are these kinds of things. There's, you, can go to, you can go to Cincinnati, Ohio, and I, I recommend you to the, to the Underground Railroad Museum and be instructed, but at the same time invited, don't forget this. Don't forget the pain and suffering in this memorial. You can go to Auschwitz. So, we're meant to, in this moment, experience a memory, a memorial of the suffering caused by God's righteous wrath. Don't forget this. And so I ask you, how did it make you feel as we read through it? Did you find yourself, in this litany, literally litany, it's a list of just awful, how did you feel? Did you find yourself going like, I can't wait to get through this? Or when you hear these kinds of things like your heart being poured out like water, do you find yourself going like, that resonates with me? Because lamenting sin and its consequences, remembering God's promises to take sin seriously, are an integral part of the life of faith. They're essential. And yet in the midst of it, God is at work. You're not meant to wish it away, but instead you're meant to think on and reflect on. In fact, this is in many ways the the entirety of the theme of the Old Testament. Uh, I shared this at at one of the men's summit we hosted uh, a few years ago. It was like, hey, are are, are we going to be the kind of men who can live out and read books like Zephaniah and Zechariah? And if you're like, I don't know what those are, then it's no. But like, it starts with the Lord is going to destroy everything everything because of sin. That's how righteous and holy God is. I share with you like the, at least a full third of the Psalms are the genre of lament, the blues, if you will, sung in a minor key. But how many of the songs on what we would classify as Christian radio would fit into the genre of the blues or lament? 
do we have a stomach for this? Because the book of Lamentations says this is God's word. And God is not shy about, in fact, there is a, a precedent in the Old Testament for protesting back to God sin and suffering. The book of Job in its entirety is a reflection on that. And many of the Psalms, as I mentioned, do this. And, and we're meant to cry out to God and say, God, this is insufferable. And so in that sense, it's instructive. It gives us the language for how we deal with the consequences of sin. It's a memorial to, to something that was awful. Up to this point in the Bible is the most difficult and awful, defining moments in the narrative of Scripture. And we're meant to, it, to see it is right and good. In fact, it's Scripture to cry out to God. I dare you, find a life verse in the book of Lamentations. See how people respond. Like, hey, hey, whoa, what's with all this sorrow? You're like, oh, yeah, the Bible, right? Like, do we have an appetite for this? Notice even the language. As you see, the, because it's written in this acrostic fashion, it's hard to pick out themes, right? It's, it's meant to be, in many ways, kind of scattered, right? If I said, write a poem uh, and, and start every line of the poem like this, you know, the lyrics of a song, and everyone began with a letter, you'd find it pretty difficult to, like, match themes because you'd just be, like, adding the next letter, right? And, and your thoughts wouldn't necessarily be connected as well, right? But that's the point. In suffering, it's meant to be, like, just list the suffering, to the point where the fifth chapter, the fifth poem, abandons the structure uh, completely, which, which is meant to be an, an image for us, right? Because when you're suffering and you're in despair, your thoughts are not organized. But there are some themes here, and one of the things you'll notice is the language of the daughter. Did you catch that? The language of the woman who is a widow, but also an adulteress in chapter 1. But that also the language of Jacob, of Jerusalem, the daughter of Jerusalem, Right? I want you to see that the point of that is this, that, that even in the terms and even in judgment, these people remain God's very own people. Still daughter, right? Like, not disowned. Still Jacob. Still God's people, even in suffering. I want to spend a couple minutes, though, on an aside. Now that we've gotten to the second chapter, this is two chapters in a row where the theme is of a desolate and assaulted woman. Just stop for a minute and let that be instructive to us. Let that be a descriptor. The writer of Lamentations is, is appealing. Now, and maybe just because it was a man, and maybe this is appealing because I'm a man. I take this fairly personally. I, some of you know this. Um, I'm, I'm blessed with a house uh, made up of women other than myself. And so this is God's calling on my life. So if I see this a little too personally, I ask your mercy but notice the writer here, in poetic fashion, is like conjuring up the most awful scene that it could imagine, right? What's the worst possible thing to illustrate the evil things that have happened with the Babylonians? What's the most desolate situation? And notice what this author comes up with, inspired by the Holy Spirit. A woman taken advantage of. Let that by description, be an example that we allow God's word to be for us. That we think of 
a woman who has been taken advantage of as one of the most awful possible things. Let us always be a people who advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. Now, I, I know this is, this, at sometimes this sounds, this is going to sound sexist, but I, I would love for you to argue with me on this, but when, whenever people do whatever's right in their own eyes, when people think, when things go nuts, this is just what I found to be the case, and I think history bears this out, the people who bear the brunt of suffering are women and children. And let us be a people who, like the author of Lamentation, are literally sickened. Me Too is not a movement. For us, it's a, it's a reflection of the heart of God for his, again, his people called his daughter. But even in judgment, that language, they belong to him. They're still his. They've been warned. Now remember, we, we saw this in every Christmas. We celebrate this in, in Deuteronomy, the before we sing that, that Christ came to remove all of curses as far as they can be found, we, we do a weird thing in Christmas. We read curses uh, as we reflect on joy to the world because Christ has removed the curse by becoming it for us, right? But they've been warned in Leviticus in 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, all of the curses, all of the eyewitness accounts of these things being busted and destroyed that we just read through were specific warnings given to them by the prophets, as if to say, look, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And they did not listen, and they became ultimately like entitled to it. Now notice, as a memorial for this kind of suffering, I want to point out an obstacle that will keep us from rightly memorializing and thinking on God's right and holy anger towards sin. You've heard me say this before, but as a, a mostly in, as a Western or American culture, we, we typically live, and this, this is changing and it comes and goes in history, but we live in what we would call like a, a dominant culture. Kind of most of us, and we kind of have a, a culture that, that exerts more influence typically than, than is exerted upon us. And, and in our dominant culture, marked mostly by prosperity, we are allergic, if not completely detest, this kind of discomfort and suffering, Right? One of the greatest obstacles to reflecting on and lamenting sin and God's judgment over sin is that we're not just allergic to awful feelings. We're allergic to awkward. Right? Have you heard this? Have you heard someone use the word awkward lately? Usually from a position of a dominant culture. And it's like they're quoting scripture and someone needs to repent. Hey, I saw so-and-so. We were hanging out. Yeah, it was awkward. Right? Like full stop. And you're meant to go like, ooh, ooh, not that. Not all, right, and it's and it's it's like left as if everyone knows, like, well, they should repent, they should repent of the awkwardness. Problem with that is, I, I think I can make the case that Jesus Christ on the earth was the most awkward human ever. Like getting invited to people's party and it's like, yeah, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, and you're like, ooh, awkward, right? <laughs> hey, repent, right? R repent, Jerusalem, chores, and like, repent or judgment will come. Ooh, Jesus, cringy, right? That's ooh. And I want you to see that, like, that, that distaste for even just discomfort will hinder us from seeing what is truly detestable, for truly feeling the weight of sin. And without feeling the depths and despair of the weight of sin, 
then we'll assume we can save ourselves or need no Savior. And so, I'll ask you this. Are you, this, this book is instructive. We see how God relates to his people in judgment. It's part of what makes him awesome. Are you okay that God does this? Most people are, until you say it this way. Are you okay if God does this to you? Oh, it's easy. It's easy to celebrate failure from someone else and despair of others. But like, is he, are you okay if God does it to you? But this is part of what makes God awesome and glorious. And you know that's true about other things. Because if we don't have a taste for this, I would just invite you, like, the most awesome, literally, like, awe-inspiring things that we can think of are also deadly, right? The glory of Mount Everest is that it will kill you if you try to stand up against it, right? Like for a, a, a brief window every year, you can kind of get up there where you, it's, it's not entirely deadly. Other than this brief window, it's like, yeah, no, you're not going to want to do that, right? And even then, as soon as you get to that height, and that temperature level, your body starts to kill itself. It's called hypoxia. That's why no one's moved there. That's why no one's like built a hut there. You die. You cannot live there. And yet, here's the thing. That's part of what makes it glorious. You're like, wow. The Grand Canyon. It's amazing. But it will kill you. The minute you think like, nah, this is not a big deal. It's sheer drops and cliffs will destroy you. It's what makes it glorious. What's, what, one of the things that makes the Pacific Ocean glorious is that you can't survive at the bottom of it. You can't cross it without help. It's what makes it amazing. And I would argue feeling small next to those things is a good thing. And smeeling, feeling, smeeling, feeling small and feeling insignificant, and here's what I would say, feeling awe, maybe even terror and dread in the face of God's glorious and righteous anger is a good thing. You should feel sick. He tells us you should. He cries out in the night, and then he begins to experience physical symptoms of sorrow and despair. So are you okay with this? Maybe I would ask it this way. Who you give permission to be angry at you? Who in your life do you give permission, we saw in last, last week, to discipline you? Because our awful feelings as we read through this might be, again, a kind reminder and revelation that you think you're God. If you can't think of someone you are glad that disciplines you, you're glad that, is, that has a right to treat you this way, then here's the thing. You think you're God. And Lamentations is an invitation to repent. I say, look, that won't end well. There's a way that ends, and it's awful. So let me walk through what I think are some observations as we think on this memorial, this revelation of the character of God, and the way that we are rightly by Scripture invited to, as an example, begin to embody this kind of sorrow and despair over sin and its effects. 
Notice, not every situation of despair, whether of a group of people or of an individual, is God's judging hand. So i got to stop for a minute here. Now, Israel is special. Jerusalem is special. It's God's chosen people through which God is going to bless and be a blessing to the nations. So there's not a one-to-one correlation. If you find yourself going like, yeah, I totally know what that's like, eh, slow down. And be careful with it. It's like when, when you go like, oh, yeah, God is definitely punishing you, right? B- be careful of that. I've seen this happen in my own, uh, my own lifetime a couple of times. I remember in, in Hurricane Katrina, I remember there was kind of like some people, you know, some vocal Christian voices are like, it's because of this. And it's like, oh, man, that's okay. And that just assumes that kind of a few things. One, that, you know, the United States of America is the new Israel. They're the chosen people. And so that when bad things happen in America, it must be because of God's wrath. That's a bad assumption. It didn't work for the Romans, okay? And it won't work for us. And so here, I would just be careful. That there's, there's, there, we're meant to be humble in the mystery here, and there's not a one-to-one correlation. Don't go around and say, like, yeah, you're suffering. God is definitely judging you. That, that's not helpful. One of the main reasons, I would say, is, like, if that were true, two things, right? In addition to thinking that we're God's chosen people, which is unhelpful, has been used to, to justify all sorts of oppressive, awful things, But it also assumes that we have that prophetic voice, that we are like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel. Now, if you're that person, right, if God gives us an ordained chosen king and you are God's ordained prophet to help guide that king and those people, great, that's awesome. I I mean, it seems like by now your prophetic words would have already come true and you'd be more famous than you are. We would already know who you are. So assuming that you're not, we want to be careful because even then, if it were, if those were true, if we are God's chosen people and you are God's chosen prophet, notice, even a hurricane is nothing compared to this. If God is to rightly judge sin on his people, it's going to be a lot worse than that. Did you hear the the A to Z, the detail? Look, even... Even the tabernacle, even things that God had blessed, like you hear, the, like the language of the footstool of God's tabernacle and God's word, the Ark of the Covenant. God is like, forget it. We'll allow it all to be destroyed. Because if I'm not going to be your God and you're not going to be my people, then who cares about your religious services? Who cares? And so we're humbled when we experience suffering. We're not emboldened to explain it away. So be careful. This isn't an invitation for you to go around and go like, oh yeah, you had a bad day. It must be because of sin in your life. God must be punishing you, right? We saw that last week. Because of Christ, we only experience the loving discipline of the Father and no more punishment. Jesus has absorbed all the punishment and now we get the loving discipline because of Christ. But in the story of Jerusalem and God's promise for his people, notice also this that we see from this chapter all destroyed, every little bit of it, nothing made by human hands can save. Nothing made by human hands can save. Another way to say this is there's nothing, the things that we can build, assemble, and gather cannot save or endure. Again, they're not meant to. They're not meant to. They're meant to be a picture of the kingdom that does endure. But you can't bring the kingdom 
unless you're the king. And so that means for the rest of us, all that we can do and should do, all that we can gather in a symbol together on this earth, will one day in a, end up in a landfill. Now that's a cause for lament, isn't it? But it's also instructive. We're meant to say, oh, that's, that's how I know I'm not God. That's how I know I'm not able to bring the kingdom. Because whenever I try to, it fails. And so even the most beautiful, amazing thing that they received stirred them up towards entitlement. Maybe the way I would say it is this. Entitlement and self-righteousness presumes that God will protect his own at all cost. Now, there were generations of prophets who came along and warned kings and subjects. Hey, stop doing this. Stop worshiping other gods, right? Stop, 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 being, stop worshiping idols. Stop killing children. Stop performing these heinous, awful crimes, right? All these things. We saw as we walked through the book of Judges. Stop doing that. Please stop. And they were like, hey, man, we're God's people, right? Haven't you met us? Like, we can get away with anything. And so they got to the point where they were like, they couldn't hear the prophets sent by God, and so God in his mercy allowed them to experience something that would shock them. We saw last chapter, stun them into having their eyes open. We're meant to see no matter what we can build, our hope is in God the creator and redeemer, not in what we do. Notice, they are not indispensable. They thought they were. And then you saw for the first Half of this, the one by one, the decimation that they experienced. And yet, even though they believed they were indispensable to God, like, hey, we're your chosen people, you can't go on without us, God was still gracious to them. Did you hear the language? God still called them daughter. God still called them their own, his own. And the ultimate goal, I saw this, I quoted this to you last week, out of Isaiah chapter 66, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and spirit and trembles at my word. That's a word that Lamentations is inviting us to embody. Contrite. It means readily and regularly feeling and experiencing guilt over sin. Maybe the way I would say it is like, are you easily corrected in sin? How defensive are you? And the theme throughout the Old Testament embodied here is the theme of contrition, that we are contrite. We are not just open to being rebuked in our sin. We're eager for it because we know its effects. We know how devastating it is. We know how it crushes and destroys we don't want to make friends with it. We don't want to become comfortable with it. We want to despair over it. And as a result in that despair, notice the encouragement for you and I. God is open to their real feelings and their honest reactions to tragedy. And God is open to yours. We ought to always be willing to broaden our categories for sin and cry out to God. We lament these things in memorial. Remember, this is what happens. And we're willing to see the weight of sin and broaden our categories of it. Now, here's the thing. I think in some ways we've done this well, right? 
I think, I think Christians are, are at times getting better, but you can kind of see, are, are they, are, are, you can just judge by an individual or a church or a group of, of people call themselves Christians. Like, hey, are you, are you becoming more and more sensitive to sin? Or you become, are you better, better at justifying sin, right? And so, for example, like Christians, there's, there's some places I think we've done this well, right? We realize we were made in God's image, and so therefore we, we become more and more aware of things like how that image and how that like, devastating life and, and that image is, is problematic, right? So Christians have, in the last uh, several decades, kind of gotten more, ex- more and more excited about like, speaking out against abortion, a disregard for the image bearers. Now, again, this is not a political, this is just Psalm 139. We just believe that God has knit us in our womb. And so we're getting better. Like, man, if we really believe that, then that means we're going to be, un- we're, we're going to be uncomfortable with these kinds of things. But are you broadening your love of image bearers? Do you pick and choose the image bearers you feel bad when they die? Or, or do you have a deep sense of, God, have mercy? We've broadened this category, I believe, in sexual ethics, right? We, like, even though there's kind of like it, it, the idea of, of, of what the, the New Testament calls like sexual immorality. Over the last hundred years, we've had to go like, hey, there's, man, there's more to it than this. We need to be more sensitive of the ways that, that sexual sin destroys. Or do you find yourself narrowing? I think the current frontier is the current state of racial reconciliation. Do you have a deepening and broadening understanding of sin? Or are you narrow? Are you like, no, no, that, like, you know what I mean? Like, and even now, like, do you have a deepening and broadening understanding of the effects of sin? When someone tells you the number of people who have, who have like, died as somehow connected to this virus, do you find yourself going like, God, have mercy. God, save us. God, help us. God, heal us. God, deliver us. Or do you find yourself like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you get what I mean? And the one way that people know we're Christians and not some partisan hacks is because we have a deepening awareness of sin. The sin in our party and camp and family and the sin in the other. So notice there's a thorough, thorough reflection on sin such that you and I, we're regularly, we're brought and we're going like, oh, this is worse than I thought. Oh, this is deeper than I thought. Oh, I've been unaware of this. That is a biblical word. It's called contrite. And it is the mark of God's presence. Are you contrite over sin and God's judgment over it? Or do you find yourself being defensive and trying to justify it? Friend, the one way you know you're a Christian is that you are justified by faith in Christ and not yourself. So you don't have to justify anything. You don't have to justify sin. You confess it and thank God that he's justified it in Christ. That is biblical lament, to feel the weight of sin. We lament the holy and righteous anger of God against sin, and we appeal to God's compassion. We know that sin is awful, not because it's bad compared to other sin. Sin is awful because it's against a righteous and holy God. So let me kind of wrap up on this. We don't like the thought of anger because we project our own anger onto God. Right? When I'm angry, I sin. And the Bible corrects us, right? In your anger, do not sin. 
Anger brings out unholiness in us, doesn't it? Right? And, and we even justify, yeah, I was just, I was angry. You're like, oh, okay, whatever. Right? But like, we don't like the thought of this because why? We're, ho- we're not holy. We're sinful. And so when you and I get angry, it's bad. When you and I pass judgment, it's almost always selfish and it's for our team. But be invited into the revelation of God's character here. God's anger is good because he is good. He is angry over righteous and holy things. And that means his anger is ultimately glorious, awesome, and brings about life. And so, we see God's wrath over sin as a good thing. We normally don't like this, but like just you, I would just point out the inconsistency. Like, if, if God isn't angry at Hitler, right, you shouldn't trust him. You certainly shouldn't sing songs to him, right? If God's cool with murderers, if, if God's like, nah, but, but notice what we find here. God is sovereign over sin and suffering. God is sovereign over it. Notice the, the language of, like, sometimes we say, like, God allows things, right? But that, doesn't, that isn't the case here. God actually caused this suffering. And it's awful. And the comfort that comes from knowing that God is sovereign over sin and suffering is the comfort in knowing that if God is sovereign over the problem, then he's he's also sovereign over the solution. And so notice, these people cry out to God, and you and I can too. It's okay, look at this, to blame God. It's okay to hold God responsible. Because when you realize that God is sovereign over the circumstances, you know he's sovereign over the solution. Now when you blame God and then interject yourself as the solution, like, look at what you've done, God. I, we ought to fix this, right? That's not biblical lament, right? That's idolatry. But when we, it, it is right and good for the people of God to look at suffering and sin and say, this is awful. And the book of Lamentations says, that's what I've been trying to tell you. God is sovereign over sin. God is sovereign over and because of that, I know it's a strange and weird, and for many of us, right, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable kind of blessing, but if God's sovereign over sin, if none of these things are, if, these, if the most awful things aren't outside of God's control, then how big must God be? So where does that leave the Christian? Well, one of the most distinct corporate laments that you and I engage in every single opportunity that presents itself, we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. These Christians celebrated what was known as the Lord's Supper. We call it communion or the Eucharist. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, listen to this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment, we're going to be, we want to take some time and reflect 
It says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. In a moment, we're going to prayerfully reflect on the sacrifice that Christ has made. But notice, the most powerful thing that Christians do is that we lament the cost of our sin on the Son of God. And in so doing, when we take the body and the blood of Christ, the body and the, and the blood through, through, the, through, the, through the elements of, of the bread and the juice, we, we declare something. And notice, it's a very uncomfortable thing. We declare death. We declare the betrayal and execution of the only innocent man who ever lived. We declare the sacrifice that God sent his own son on our behalf. Friend, Christians live in a perpetual state of lament. Do you remember what I told you the book of Lamentations does for us? It's instructive. Lament is instructive. It's also a memorial, but it's also revelatory. Notice how that happens at the cross. What do we learn about lament at the cross? That God can use anything for his glory. God doesn't abandon those in suffering. Suffering doesn't get the last word. What about memorial? We remember that the price has been paid. And what about revelation? We see what God is like. He's not up there and out there, but he is willing to sacrifice himself to take our place. Friend, we declare that. We lament the cost of our sin on Christ until he comes back. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. We thank you for your kindness upon us. We thank you for your mercy. God, we confess these words are too difficult for us to to bear on our own. These, These words are, apart from us, too much for us to carry. We thank you that the language here of lamentations help us, helps us in ways that we wouldn't naturally operate. I confess, Father, my, I think of my sin as small. I think it's not that big a deal. I think it's not that costly. Would you confront me now and remind me of how your righteous anger over sin is the good and right response of a holy God. God, let me have just some glimpse of that. Let let me have some bit of your heart in that. Help me to hate and despise and despair over sin and its effects just in some small way like you do. Maybe if there's some in this room that have never thought about the consequences of their sin, would you even now begin to provoke them to to reflect on how things that they have done have hurt themselves and others. Maybe for the rest of us, we, we just become calloused and we don't like to think about this. Would you develop in us a heart of contrition? Help us be readily sensitive to the sin in our own hearts and in the presence and its presence in the world so that we will experience the deep renewal of your grace over us. Allow us to do this as we lament over the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen.